Father, we come before you and we ask for your wisdom and insight, just as Solomon, when he asked for wisdom to lead your people, you were so pleased with him that he did not ask for his enemies. He did not ask for wealth and power, but he asked for wisdom. And you freely gave it. We know your word says in the book of James that anyone who asks for wisdom, you freely provide it without finding fault. So this is our prayer, that you would give us wisdom, that you would provide for us understanding or insight into your scriptures. We know that this is your will for us. Anything that we have, that we are, anything that we pray according to your will, you promise to give it to us. So we will expect that, Lord, according to your word, for you are God. In Jesus' name, amen. Do doubts ever arise in your mind why things happen the way that they do? Usually, the doubts arise because we have a limited perspective. Now, for those of you of the equestrian bent, do you know what blinkers or winkers are? Anybody know what blinkers or winkers are? Yes, that's it. That's it. Exactly. I think, Marlon, you had it too. It's what they put on horses. It's the blinkers or winkers or blinders is what they're known as. And so, for instance, there's a famous set of horses that have those on. Do you know which horses? The Clydesdale from what company? Oh, we won't mention them. Never mind. <laughs> but you, you have those blinders on those horses to keep them focused so they do not see what's on either side and they do not see what's behind them. Now, as we're going through the scripture, we look at specific things in there. These miracles in chapter 8 and chapter 9, we have the blinders on. We're looking at each one. But it's also necessary that we take those blinders off, that we keep the perspective not only of where we're going, but what's on either side of us and what's behind us. Because a horse can kind of see what's behind. He has that type of eye, kind of just turn a little bit and he can see what's behind him. The Lord wants us to have the full perspective. Now I'm going to take you back just a little bit as a way of introduction here. If you remember Disneyland, Disneyland in the late 60s, of course I was only one year old, but I remember in the late 60s, you go to Disneyland and you go through the main gates that are right there. Bathroom fire stations are off to the left. You walk through the gate. You have the first store that's on the left there. For anything you want to buy, you continue down. The lockers are on the right. And you go to the main square that's right there. And back behind you is commercial or commercial carnation where you get the ice cream and the goodies. And over to the right, you have that nice restaurant where you can just eat until you're stuffed. And then in the 60s, as you turned, there was this structure. The structure was a house. The house was the house of the future. You guys remember that? House of the future? I mean, now it's just like way back. It had all the conveniences and it had the, the blender that was in mounted inside the, the uh, counters there. I mean, everything was automatic. And now it's all on our phone. We're much beyond what that house of the future was. And you, you go to the right and there used to be the, the new thing was the Monsanto. You shrink the incredible shrinking man, and you went through that. And then off on the left, where currently Buzz Lightyear is, if you go there, you'll see this Buzz Lightyear thing, and you're firing at all of these things. It's pretty unique. Well, something else used to be there. And it was this view around 360. 
and you, they would have bars up in there because you'd hold on to the bars as all the cameras play. It was a 360 view of everything going on. And you had to hold on to those bars because when the plane started to go, you would go with it and people would have a tendency to fall over as they're watching this complete view. But the point was... You had this full view. You could look in front of you. You could look behind you. And everybody that was standing in there, no one was just looking forward. They were looking all around. They were going, wow, you see everything from this perspective. They have bumped that up a little bit. And if you go over to California Adventure, they have this new ride. And it's kind of like the IMAX maximum. They put you in these chairs. And there's like four rows of them. And they take these chairs and they put it right up to the screen. They lift the whole thing up. You're in a seatbelt and it's like you're Superman. It's like you're flying through the air and they blow wind in your face. And as you go over the falls, a little bit of water sprays in your face. It is the full effect. You understand completely what's going on. You're oblivious to everybody that's around you, but you are in your environment. And it's really kind of cool. Now relate that to the Bible. When you look at the Bible, you want to make sure you're, you're pinpointing on one thing in the IMAX experience. You go, wow, that's cool. Look at that. And the bird flies by and you see that. You see everything that's there. You focus on certain things, but you see everything that's there. In the Gospel of Matthew, the same thing needs to happen. It is ordered in a particular order that spoke specifically to the Jews. And we need to understand what that order is. Now we're going to be looking at Jairus' daughter, the woman with the issue of blood, the two blind men, and the demon-possessed man. But there's something much bigger in chapter 8 and 9 that God wants us to focus on. But first, Jairus' daughter... It says in verse 18, while he was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. And this story is also related in Luke chapter 8 in the synoptic gospels. It's there, but then it jumps to this interruption, this woman who was along the way. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. Now that's a truncated version of what took place. Jesus, it it says in the other accounts that when Jairus, and we don't know that it's Jairus here, but when Jairus, he was the leader of the synagogue, when he came to Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he asked him to come and heal his daughter who was very sick. By the time this process goes through with the woman who has the issue of blood, a messenger comes and tells Jairus that his daughter has died. And Jesus turns to him and says, don't worry, do not be afraid, if you just believe He tells him basically everything's going to be fine. And so this woman comes up, sees Jesus as Jesus is pressing through the crowd. One of the other gospel accounts says he's pressing through the crowd. There are so many people going back to Disneyland. I've been to Disneyland on uh, New Year's Eve. Don't ever go to Disneyland on New Year's Eve. If you guys know where the Pirates of the Caribbean is, there's this bridge that's right next to the old... uh, family robinson treehouse that's right there there's a bridge that goes over there patty and i were actually stuck on the bridge people we were shoulder to shoulder on that we could not move we could not go forward we could not go back we just kind of stood there you know and that's what jesus was going through when he tried to get with jairus and go 
to heal his daughter. He was pressing through the crowd. So many people were there, and this woman thinks to herself, if I just touch him, if I just touch the edge of his cloak. Now, there's something specific about his cloak. And in the Old Testament, it was necessary that Jews wore four tassels. If you look up on the Internet now, they will show you two tassels on this side and two tassels on this side. Sometimes in their prayer robes, the prayer cloth, the shawl that they have, they have tassels on that as well. And it is for a specific purpose. In Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 41, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at so you will remember all the commandments of the Lord and you will or you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lust of your own heart and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. And so God commanded that all the Jewish males have these tassels. If you go to Israel today, you'll see these guys. If you go up to the College Avenue um, Baptist Church up in that area where there's a synagogue there, if you go up there on Saturday, you will see the Hasidic Jews, some of the real devout Jews, they walk there uh, to the synagogue, and they have these tassels hanging down off of their waist. The woman who reached out to touch Jesus, probably was going for one of these tassels. He would have these tassels on the bottom of his garment there. And she thought, if I can just touch that tassel, I will be healed. And so it's a point of connection, a point of faith for her. Was it necessary that she touch the tassel to be healed? It wasn't necessary for that to happen. But in order for this to be spoken about her throughout the generations to come, God determined that it would take place this way. And so this woman had this issue of bleeding. And by the way, there is a medical term for this, abnormal uterine bleeding or dysfunctional uterine bleeding. It is a, a not real common, but it, it happens. And this woman had spent everything that she had, went to all the doctors to try to get this condition cured, and it wasn't cured. And so Jesus, as he's walking along, he felt virtue according to the King James, go from him. And he didn't know who touched him. This is one of the cases of things he didn't know. Another thing he didn't know was the day of his return. But he didn't know this. And so as the woman reached out and touched him, Jesus felt the virtue go out from him, the healing power. And he goes, who touched me? And the disciples are, just remember the bridge at Pirates of the Caribbean. If I would have turned to Patty on that bridge, and I said, somebody touched me. <laughs> she goes, Really? You know, somebody touched you? Well, that's where Jesus was as well. You know, everybody was just pressing around him. Not only that, but every hand was probably reaching out to him wherever he was traveling. And and so this woman reaches in there. She goes low. Everybody else is going high. She goes low. She goes in for that tassel. She grabs the tassel. Bingo! She is healed right there. And then Jesus is searching for her, and she knew it, and she confessed it was me. And he he basically said to her, according to your faith, this is good. And so then it picks up that Jesus continues over to Jairus' house to heal his daughter. Now, one more thing about these tassels, and I said it's a point of connection, something tangible, a reminder. Uh, These 
can be good. Like, for instance, if you go to a Lutheran church, they have an altar up there. Usually it's made of marble, and they have five crosses, one on each corner and one in the middle. Now, if you think about it for a second, you think, well, what would that stand for? That would stand for the piercing of the hands, piercing of the feet, and the piercing of the heart. And it's a reminder. It's a point of connection. The Jews had the tassels. It was a reminder for them. We have things that can be special to us that are reminders that we hold on to and we say, you know, this, this is special to me. The only problem with that is they can become idols. They can become something so precious to us that it would just ruin our lives if we were to lose those items. Could you imagine if she reached out and she grabbed the tassel and it came off and it was in her hand? What do you think would have happened to that tassel? It would have been enshrined. They would have made a church around it. You know, it's like Moses in the wilderness. When the plague was coming, he stuck this stake in the ground and he put a snake on it, a serpent. What did the Israelites do with that? When they looked at it, they would be healed. What did they do with that? They made it an idol and people would go and worship it. And so these points of connection are, they can be okay as long as they're not an idol. But she needed that connection to hold on to. The people needed the stake in the wilderness with the serpent on it. Of course, that represents Jesus Christ. And that is also where we get our medical symbol. The medical symbol has two snakes on it. Uh, The original one only had one snake, and that comes from Moses and the Pentateuch, the five books. Now, going on with this, Jesus was pressing to go with Jairus. In verse 23, it says, When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, Go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and looked or took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread throughout that region. Now, I like the other gospel accounts, too. I'm just going to read one to you. It's Mark chapter 5, verse 35. It says, While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw the commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha koum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. They gave strict orders not to tell anyone, or he gave strict orders not to tell anyone, Uh, to know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, 12 years old, Eric's son, Christian, sitting right there. Raise your hand, Christian. He's 12 years old. I asked him, sitting in the foyer, I said, how old are you? 12. What grade are you in? Seventh. That's how old this girl was. Now, how precious would a little girl like that be to the synagogue ruler? It'd be his life. She would be his life. And so he was devastated. Now, there is no one greater a religious authority in the town of Capernaum than this guy. This guy was it. 
Now, most all the other Jews, the leaders of the Jews, they rejected Jesus. But this was his base of operation in Capernaum. Peter's house was up there. He did the Sea of Galilee circuit up there, whether it be to uh, Tiberias, which is on the western shore, Bethsaida, which is towards the north, or the Gadarenes, which is to the east. If you went around there, Jesus would be going around there so he would know what's going on in that area. So he said, you know, I'm going to him. I'm going to Jesus. I've seen him heal all of these people. And by the way, if you go back a chapter and you look in chapter 8, when Jesus showed up at Peter's house, his mother-in-law was sick. And it says in the next verse or the next chapter or paragraph there, it says, and he healed many. So all night long, as long as he could last, he was healing people that came to him. And in the town of Capernaum, this guy would have seen it. He would have been there. His daughter was sick. He goes, I'm going to Jesus. And that's going to be the end of it. So when Jesus shows up to the house here, this guy being such an important guy, he would have had professional mourners and there used to be people that do, did this they're called moirologists they would show up they'd play f- a flute they would sing a dirge do you guys know what a dirge is it's kind of like a funeral song and they'd be wailing and not gnashing of teeth but just carrying on really loud and jesus shows up and basically would you guys knock it off she's just sleeping they're going <laughs> <laughs> Their wailing turned to laughter. I mean, they were really sincere. They're a bunch of actors, is who they are. And they're doing this for a show. But Jesus said, just get out, you know, go outside. And so then he takes the mother and father and the disciples that were with them, and he sits down next to her and says, little girl, get up. And she gets up, and she's completely fine. What a miracle. And then she comes walking out. Guess what all the mourners did then? Their jaws dropped you know, to the ground that this girl's alive. She was dead. And it would have been a fantastic feat, a fantastic miracle that would have taken place. You know, when, when one of us expires, our body temperature just drops just way down. And you can tell that somebody is no longer alive. If you grab their hand, there's no warmth there whatsoever. And they would have known this grabbing this little girl. They would have grabbed her hand and, oh, no, she's cold and very cold. So she would have certainly have expired. But Jesus came in, saw the girl, encouraged the ruler. And remember, he said, don't be afraid, just believe. Now, Jesus said she was asleep. This idea of being asleep, sleep is a metaphor for death. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. Because the state of death, as we know it currently, not when the judgment comes, but as we know it currently, it is a temporary state. Because everybody will be resurrected. Those who believe and those who do not believe. Those who believe will be resurrected to life. Those who do not believe will be resurrected to eternal punishment and everlasting contempt, according to Matthew and also according to the book of Daniel, chapter 12. So this idea of death, it's temporary. When a believer dies, it's like going to sleep. For some, it's going to be a long time that they're going to be napping, but Christ is going to call them from the grave and they're going to get up. To give you an example of this, Lazarus. Remember when Jesus turned to his buddies, his disciples who were there, and said, "Ah, you know, we need to go to Lazarus. He's fallen asleep. And what did the disciples say? Well, Lord, if he's sleeping, he's going to wake up. You know, what's the deal? And then he had to turn to him and he goes, 
He's dead, all right? He's dead. We're going to go see him. That's one case where it's used. Stephen, he was also a guy that fell asleep, so to speak. Uh, it says, when he had said this in Acts chapter 7, verse 50, or 60, it says, when he had said this, he fell asleep. And he was stoned, but it says he fell asleep. It doesn't say he died. Then, you know, at the death of Jesus, what happened to those who were in the grave? They came out of the grave. Many people came out of the grave, those who were spiritual, those who had loved God. It says, and the graves were opened in many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep. What a sight that would have been, huh? Imagine going by Rosecrans. I have family out at Rosecrans. All of a sudden, you know, the hands pop. You'd think it was a zombie movie or something, but the hands would pop out of the ground. They'd get up. Oh, 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 whoa, that was exciting. And then they'd have to find their family members. They'd go back into town and, whoa, I thought you were dead. You know, I thought I was too. And they show up, but they were simply asleep. The bad thing for them is, they had to die again. They didn't get their resurrected body. They were just resuscitated, and so they had to die again. And the Old Testament, if you've ever heard the phrase, well, and he slept with his fathers. Or uh, death, again, is temporary, but we want to make sure that we understand this for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it talks about we will fall asleep if we don't get taken in the rapture, and we will awaken at the resurrection of the dead. So this metaphor of sleep for the believer and for the unbeliever, it is prevalent throughout Scripture. Jesus uses it. Paul the Apostle uses it. So when somebody dies, it's not final. We will wake back up. And by the way, when we do die, some people think it's just soul sleep, that you just go to sleep, and you don't wake up, and there's hardly any time that would you would recognize from the time that you fall asleep to the time that you're resurrected like you're not conscious scripture doesn't say that we are all conscious i've often said i believe we will be more conscious more aware once we have died than we are when we were alive we will know exactly what is going on around us just take you know the abraham's bosom abraham's alive and even Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so they are aware. And there's a place for the unrighteous dead, which is in hell, a place of torment, and a place for the righteous dead, which is Abraham's bosom or the paradise of God or in the presence of God. It goes on and talks about two blind men. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him. And he asked them, Do you, and this is key again, do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, it will be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. And just a side note, Jesus is the second time we see, he says, don't say anything about it. You know, just keep it between yourself because it made it difficult for him to do his job. And so many more people could have been touched and healed if he wasn't restricted physically. And so it wasn't his time yet. You know, people would want to raise him up and make him king. And, of course, we know that that happened a couple of times. But it wasn't his time. And so that's why the delay was imposed on these people who had gotten healed. And these individuals who wanted to get healed, you see this often in Scripture, where if you go and make a request like these blind men, they said, have mercy on us. For me, I would think that someone would say 
Jesus, have grace upon me. Give me your unmerited favor. I want something from you that I don't deserve. But the phrase that is used is, have mercy on us. Don't judge me according to what I do deserve, or don't give me what I do deserve. But the phrase is, have mercy on us. And this is used repeatedly in Scripture. In Psalms chapter 9, uh, verse 13, it says, Have mercy and lift me from the gates of death, where somebody is asking for healing. Psalm 41, verse 4, I said, O Lord, have mercy on me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. And what does Jesus desire from us instead of sacrifice? Mercy. So what is this? Have mercy on me. They are requesting something from God, a benefit that would inure towards them, that would be given to them. If somebody says, please have mercy on me, they are asking something from you. And so with that in mind, if Jesus desires mercy and not sacrifice, what is he saying? He's saying, go and give somebody something that they don't deserve. Some help, some assistance. If Jesus wants from us sacrifice, well, yes, we're to offer our bodies as a sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. That's holy and acceptable unto God. But he's asking, more important, go do something for someone. Show them mercy. Where they cannot heal themselves, they cannot help themselves, they cannot do something for themselves, so go. Now, who do you think that's listed for? Everyone. There is no one that can say, Jesus doesn't require me to go show mercy to someone. No, au contraire. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, he wants us to go. Now, it may be to your neighbor. It may be to somebody in the city. It may be international. It may be Cambodia, Africa, the Middle East, somewhere like that. But God wants us to go. We are not allowed to say, as the disciple of Jesus Christ, now leave that for somebody else. Let somebody else take care of it. I'll go and fund them. And there are those cases that people cannot go, but those who can, those who are able-bodied, you're to go to either your neighbor, your friend, your family member, people in the city, people in the state, people international, where to go and show them mercy. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate. He's communicating clearly. We're just trying to understand what he wants from us specifically. So go and provide assistance. The Pharisees were focused on themselves, how they could be holy and do these holy and righteous acts and build up holiness for themselves. And Christ wants us to be focused on others. So that's what have mercy on me means. Do something for me, and we're supposed to be like Christ, have mercy on others. Then there was a demon-possessed man. Verse 32. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisee says, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. What, what a slap in the face. Just imagine if you did something that was to benefit someone else, and it was out of the pureness of your heart. And you didn't announce it to anybody. You're just doing this to bless somebody. And somebody comes along and says, it's just because you want attention. Would you be offended? 
by that? When that was not the desire of your heart. You, the desire of your heart was to act in a pure fashion, didn't want anybody to know. If somebody finds out about it and they insult you by coming to you and saying, ah, you're just a, a, a monger for attention. That's what you want. I would certainly be offended by that. God would know. You would be offended by that. God would know. But when they were pointing the finger at Jesus and said, you are doing this by the prince of demons. You are doing this by Satan. That is such an offense, it's called the unforgivable sin. Now, people often have a question about the unforgivable sin. Does that still take place today? Some theologians say, well, no, is when Jesus was on earth, the power of the Holy Spirit was acting through him, committing the, or committing, carrying out these miracles, and that is not taking place today. And the unforgivable sin today is just simply the rejection of Jesus Christ. All I know is that if somebody comes along and curses Christ or is just blasphemous, they're not saved. Now, whether or not they can get saved, some people would say yes. Some people would say no because the ultimate sin is rejecting Christ. Even Paul called himself a blasphemer. You know, this idea, or others called Paul the blasphemer. They even called Jesus a blasphemer. But yet he was God in human form. And so attributing the works of God to Satan and giving Satan the credit for that, that is the ultimate, and you are not saved. Someone comes along and says, Christ be cursed. They are not saved. No one can say that if they have the Spirit of God. And you can only say that Christ is not cursed, that Christ is Christ, he's the Messiah, Jesus is God, by the Spirit of God, just like Peter did. You are the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. And he says, the Father has revealed this to you, Simon Peter. And so you can tell if somebody has the Spirit of God or if they don't have the Spirit of God based on the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, whatever they say. They will tell you if they are saved or if they are not saved by the witness. Now, sometimes it's hard to tell. Some people will say, I believe in God. And then they, you can imagine the lifestyle that comes out of their mouth. Now, I know that all of you guys have heard some colorful language. I wouldn't even call it colorful. I'd call it charcoal and dark is what it is. And that's how they talk. And you hear that and you go, whoa, you know, what gutter did you pick that language out of? And there are people that are like that. And you can tell there's not the Spirit of God moving in their lives. It's not in their heart. I can tell what's in their heart. If you just spend enough time with them, you will find out. That's why we need to perfect our speech. Jesus says, or Jesus spoke through Paul to the book of James, or in the book of James. And they said in there, or he says in there, that this idea of the mouth, you know, that that perfecting it, the tongue, If you perfect it, you've perfected the entire body. So if you want to be perfect, perfect your speech. If that means don't say anything, well, you've perfected it, right? That's an easy way to do it. If you open up your mouth, if you're full of sin, and we are all uh, guilty of having a sinful nature, eventually we're going to sin. Remember, Scripture says where there are many words, sin is not absent. That's why guys don't talk much, right? Because we're perfect. Just kidding, just kidding. I knew that would get like, what? You know, and women, they do like to talk. And so there is a case where gossip can take place. And by the way, men do it too. 
I just want to let you know. I just want to establish that. So let's go on. So this idea of calling the Holy Spirit Satan is basically what they're doing in Matthew chapter 12, which we'll eventually get to again talks about this it reads there and so i tell you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men but the blasphemy against the holy spirit will not be forgiven anyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven but anyone who speaks against the holy spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come and so we are not in any way to accept this testimony that somebody is attributing the works of god to the works of satan Now, going on with this, there is a thread, a thread which is going through the Gospel of Matthew where you have the 360 vision, where you are in the IMAX and you are flying through there. You have the full perspective. We have focused on Jairus' daughter. We have focused on the woman with the issue of blood. We have focused on the blind men. We have focused on the demon-possessed man. We have seen all of that, and we have those little winkers on is what we're doing when we look at that. But if we don't look at the whole gospel as we've come up to this point so far, it's all leading the Jews to come to the realization of who Jesus is. Remember, Matthew depicts Jesus as king. That's who he is. What does Mark depict Jesus as? Servant. What does Luke depict Jesus as? A human being, a man. Who does John depict Jesus as? God. And so four different perspectives. We want to get Matthew's perspective of what is going on here. Now, there are 10 miracles that take place in chapter 8 and 9, and I've listed what those are, and it was the power of health that Jesus had, the power over nature, the power over the supernatural, the power over the natural. All of those things Jesus demonstrated that he had, but it's part of a bigger picture. If we review a little bit some of those things that have already taken place of course we had the leopard we had the servant and the centurion we had peter's mother-in-law how jesus calmed the storm how he cast out demons into the pigs how he healed the paralytic on the mat jairus's daughter the woman with the issue of blood the two blind men the demon possessed the man who was at the end there there was something that was common to all of those you could put a needle and a thread through all of them and i i tried to bring out the fact that remember this this is important and it has to do with faith. This faith, do you know, you know what scripture says faith is? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And, and there are different ways to express that, different uh, versions express it different ways. It is, it is holding on to being sure or certain of what we do not see. And Jesus wants us to be like these people in the miracles, to be certain of what we do not see. Are you certain that you're going to be raised from the dead? Because we're all going to die. I'm going to die. You're going to die. Should the Lord, um, his timing be off from ours? We want him to come before the day's out, right? We want him to come this afternoon. I want him to come before I have to do any more work whatsoever. I'll be able to rest from my labors, and so will you. Chances are that's not going to happen. I think the evil has to increase a little bit more on the earth here. But this idea of do you believe with certainty that Jesus is coming back? Do you believe with certainty that you are saved? This is what Jesus was requiring of everybody there. Jairus, he said, don't worry, just believe. Or according to your faith, you have been made whole. It's the point we're supposed to have this faith. Now, Scripture says God has given to every man a measure of faith to believe. 
But do you believe with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength that Jesus is who he said he is? He was able to perform the miracles. The testimony that has been given to us is true, and it is just, it is accurate, all of those things. Do you believe it beyond a shadow of a doubt? That's what Jesus is asking us to do. Do you believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that God wants to use you? And you might say, no, I can't do it. But I stutter, you know, I'm, I'm not very eloquent. Remember somebody who said that? Moses, that's right. I can't do it. Send somebody else. No, I don't. Oh, please. And God shows up to kill him. And the wife saves him. Thank God for wives. The wife saves him from being killed by the incarnate Jesus Christ. The Christophany, I believe, is what it was. And he didn't die because the wife saved him, circumcised the sons, and he hadn't done that yet. He's probably already supposed to do that. So God wants us to have faith that his word is true that it's solid, that he has a plan for us, that there's salvation awaiting for us, that he gives us direction on what we're supposed to do in this life and what we're supposed to avoid. And our task is to act accordingly, act on the faith, build our faith, build our belief as we encounter the trials that come along. That's the thread that's going through there. And it's much bigger than that. There's this progression that has taken place from chapter 1 as it goes on here. You know, in, in verse 35, it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease. And I read that, I go, I know, I just read that. It's in chapter 4. Jesus went throughout Galilee, verse 23, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So from chapter 4, 23, you have one bookend, and you come to chapter 9, verse 35, you have the other bookend. So everything in between is centered on the teaching, preaching, and healing. And we just got done with the healing. The teaching and the preaching, chapter 5. You have the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest sermon. And so you see this progression that takes place. Now, it focuses on the healing. Why did Jesus heal? Some would say, well, and I've said it too, that it is an undeniable fact that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who was prophesied to come because of the miracles that were performed as a result of his ministry. That's who it pointed to. Well, he also did it for another reason, not just that. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So the two things we're supposed to take from the scripture here up until this point in all the ministry of Jesus, the teaching, the preaching, and the healing, is that he wants us to have faith and he acted through compassion. There are so many scriptures that deal with the description of God and the compassion that he shows. Exodus 33, 19, I'm just going to read some of them to you it says i myself will make my goodness pass before you this is where he has moses puts him in the cleft of the rock i will proclaim my name the lord before you and i will be gracious to whom i will be gracious and show compassion to whom i will show compassion exodus 34 verse 6 the lord the lord the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is compassionate. Psalm 116, verse 5, yes, our God is compassionate. I have so many verses listed here that our God is a God of compassion. And I'll probably expand on this a little more next week. But this idea, what does compassionate mean? 
We see that God is a God of compassion and he wants us to have faith. And those two things are supposed to be working together to bring us to full discipleship. The reason we do what we do is for the sake of God, but also for the sake of others. And we must believe that God wants to use us to reach that goal, to reach that end. And if we buy into that, if we accept what God is teaching us through this gospel of Matthew, we will come to a certain conclusion. He goes in verse 37, then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. And of course, the harvest is the end of the age, and there's a couple of different descriptions of what you could do with that, but let's get the full context here now. We started out in chapter 1. You had the line of David, and he talks about Jesus coming up through the ranks. It's a fulfilled prophecy that he would be in the line of David, and he is the king. He is to sit on David's throne. Then the Magi come, and they honor him as a king and a priest. Of course, he was a prophet as well. as prophesied that he would come to die. He was given the gold, frankincense, and myrrh for his death. Then he escaped to Egypt, a fulfillment of prophecy, returned to Nazareth. He would be called a Nazarene. So we have the biography of Jesus that was spelled out in the Old Testament coming to fruition in the New Testament. Then he had a forerunner, this guy named John the Baptist who looked just like someone else. Elijah from the Old Testament. I just went through uh, reading about or listening to uh, scriptures about Elijah. Who is that man that told you that in the wilderness? Who is that guy? Well, he had a coat of hair and a leather belt on. Well, who is that? John the Baptist? No, it was Elijah. And John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. You see, it's all being set up for the Jew. He's coming as a prophesied Messiah. He is called a Nazarene. He escaped to Egypt. And then he comes along and he begins to preach, teach, and heal, which is also prophesied in the book of Isaiah. And the Sermon on the Mount, it was a new way. It was a new discipleship program. It was a new teaching. And he does these healings. Once he does these healings and everybody sees and they gain this faith and they see why he does it, he has compassion. Guess what the very next thing is? If you don't look at your scriptures right now and see the heading in chapter 10, he sent out the twelve. He leans all the way up to this point and he goes, now you are going to do this. How do you apply that to self? Now we all are going to do this. It's not, we get the scriptures just like the Jews did. It had a beginning. It comes to fruition. He calls out the 12. The 12 are to the go. And we are supposed to look at them and say, well, how did they handle this? And they went out and they healed people and they were received and they were rejected. All of those things. That is for us. If we're to apply that to ourselves, We are to, that two-letter word, go. Why do we go? Because God commands us to, and he is a God of compassion, and he wants us to reach the lost and dying world. That means people that we know that are not saved, tell them how to get saved. Remember Romans 10, 9 to 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Remember that? I know it's a little fast. I'm sure you can repeat it just as fast because you have it memorized by now, right? It's this idea that we give the gospel, we do works of compassion to people up in Paradise Valley that have lost everything up there. If God tells you to help somebody with a GoFundMe page up there or give to an organization that's helping out, help them out. That's what God wants us to do. God wants us to reach out. We are not to be moles in our little pockets, surrounded with earth, saying, I'm just fine. Give me my little earthworm, and we'll be these signs of these little sedentary creatures just eating worms. He doesn't. 
I don't know how I got to those guys, but it's this idea that we are not sedentary, we're not alone, we are reaching out. We are supposed to gift those people if it is by the nap of the neck and say, I'm going to save you from the fire. It's not us that saves, it's Jesus, but Jesus uses us to do it. And so we're supposed to be about the Lord's business. That's the theme, that's the thread that's running through Matthew. And God wanted to make it clear to the Jews if they would have been paying attention after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and this gospel is written, if a Jew saw this, he should have been stunned. He said, wow, how did I miss this? This is what God said would happen and it's been brought to fruition. Because of this, we can have faith that he's coming again and he's going to do every single thing that he said he would do. So how ought we to live you know, it, this life is a struggle. It's hard. That one song that we sang, Oh, Come to the Altar. You know, I don't know about you, but, you know, when I look at myself and I see the sin on the inside, I just think, hey, Lord, who will deliver me from this body of death? The Lord will if we just have faith. Do you have faith that God can do that? That God can lead you in that direction? I would encourage you to develop that faith but it can't be developed if we're a mole. We have to reach out to others. We have to give them the gospel. We have to give a hand of assistance. We have to have mercy, bring help to those who are out there. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. It's just so powerful, the message that is there. You have called us to love and good deeds. May we encourage each other, especially as we see evil increasing and the day approaching. There are so many that you love, that you have compassion for, and you want them in your kingdom. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to study to show ourselves approved, to not be sedentary, to reach out to those who need you. We thank you for the opportunities that you give us. May you multiply those in the future. And may we work at this, so to speak, Lord. For we know that you motivate us, but may we act in faith, knowing that you want us to do things. Lead and guide us. Protect us as we do. We'll trust in you for this. In Jesus' name. You know, said.